Welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are now living. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role as white folks in resistance, about our role in showing up for liberation? My name is Margaret Ernst, and I'm a learner and organizer an emerging minister, and a newlywed. My heart lies in my community, in laughter, in singing, and in being a fiercely imperfect white woman struggling against racism and white supremacy. Because I know that, as Southern organizer Anne Braden said, my life depends on it. I'm a child of the Northeast, personally, though I have family roots spread across Illinois and Pennsylvania farmland, in Chicago printing houses, and in Massachusetts, Puritan villages. Right now, I'm living in Nashville, Tennessee, where I attend seminary and am involved with various struggles for racial, economic, and immigrant justice. I'm also a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. SURGE is a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that following Jesus in this time and in this country means listening to, learning from, and joining in the struggle against racism and white supremacy. For that reason, we're exploring through the lectionary text what particular challenge the gospel holds for white folks in this time. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. We also know that whiteness is not monolithic, and that while we may share many things in common about how we have been shaped by being white in our culture, there are many things like our class story, our gender, and sexual orientation, where we come from. All of these things can lead to enormous differences in our experience. Those are important, super important stories to tell, especially so that each of us knows that we're not alone, and so that we can come to this work fully as we are. So how is this podcast speaking to you? Where do our stories align with yours? And what stories are not being told? You can leave us a comment on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. I'm recording this today in Nashville at my kitchen table, beginning to settle into new rhythms as summer winds down, trying to not fall into bad habits that can come up for me when things get busier and when I feel stretched more thinly. I'll admit, I'm in the trenches of learning a ton about myself recently. And wow, growth is really, really hard. I'll share some about that on this podcast, and I want to encourage you in all the ways that you're feeling growth in this time too. Or in all the places where you're struggling. We're in it together. So let's get into it a little more. I want to spend today talking about fear with you, because the gospel reading for this week is Matthew's telling of Jesus walking on water. 
And there's a lot of fear happening in this text. If you try hard enough and lean in while you're reading and really breathe in these words, maybe you can even feel the fear in your body creeping up your arms and down your legs when you're reading it. Leading up to this section of texts, Jesus has just fed possibly up to 10,000 people, if women and children are included in the count, with just five loaves and two fish. He did this mass feeding right after he was trying to get away from the crowds, because he heard the person who baptized him, and someone who we surmise is probably his close associate, maybe even a movement mentor, was executed by Herod, the Roman client king of Judea. I can only imagine what Jesus may have been feeling or thinking when he got this news. And then, when the crowds followed him, hoping that he would cure the sick after he himself was hurting, I can only imagine what he was feeling when he did those acts, those miracles, when he too was afraid, very afraid. But he did, and in spite of the disciples' concern about not nearly enough to go around, he feeds the crowds. And then he seeks more solitude that evening, perhaps still rocking, still pummeled and devastated by the news about John the Baptist, who was not only executed, let's say, his head was cut off and served on a platter. Jesus sends the disciples to go on to the other side of the Sea of Galilee without him. He goes up a mountain to pray. He prays there alone until evening comes. And by the time of the morning, with the wind against them, the disciples' boat has been pushed even farther away. The first sight the disciples see that early morning is Jesus walking on water. And the first reaction is fear. It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, the text reads. Jesus responds directly to their fear. Take heart, he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And here is where Peter comes in. Peter, who doesn't show up in the other gospel's renditions of this story. Peter, who makes this story a whole lot more interesting. I'll read verses 28 through 32 here in full, because it's good. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Lord, save me. The next line seems to suggest that this action of walking on water and calming the winds triggers the disciples to name Jesus Son of God. In the history of the church, this text has been a big part of the case made by theologians to prove Jesus' divinity. However, 
we know that from other ancient Jewish texts, within the Bible included, miracles were not uncommon. There are stories of miracle and wonder workers throughout the Bible, like Elijah and Elisha, whose prophecy shows up in them alongside their superhuman power to call fire down from heaven or to bring people back to life or to feed the hungry. From other texts, we find in Jesus' time there are stories deep within Jewish tradition of Honi, the circle maker, who made rain come, or Hanina, Bendosa, who could make the rain come and miraculously heal the sick. So, in this scene among many, within literature of the time, and in Jesus' tradition, and within the we're hearing the story about a miracle worker. But there's nothing about doing miracles on their own that necessarily has a salvific quality or a deep challenge to us as readers. I think as epic and perfectly Hollywood as this story is, what's the most magnetic about it is not the drama of winds and the rain, but the emotional content that's right there with it. It's telling us something about fear and how to accept fear as part of the story of a miracle, not a story of how miracles happen in spite of our fear. And because of the many fears that we carry that hold us back from resisting racism, this is an important word that we white folks must listen for. And so let's sit for a minute with some of the dialogue from the story again from this wind-beaten exchange between a grieving Jesus and a fearful, uncertain Peter. Lord, if it is you, come. Lord, save me. Why did you doubt? a conversation with a friend of mine recently who really wants to understand more about why it's so hard to get people in mainline white liberal congregations to show up for racial justice movement in a real way. This is who she means. She means people who can say all the right things and read the right books, but cannot act boldly, cannot go out of their comfort zones, or put their own privileges and unearned benefits from racism at risk. I'll add a side note for transparency here that these folks, for the most part, are my people, I will add, and the people who raised me. My friend said, I want to figure out why so many white congregations get so paralyzed. We agreed that, yes, we'd meet up to talk about it more, but in that moment, this is what came out of my mouth. White people are so afraid. We are terrified. Now, Reverend Ann talked last week about white fragility, which is all sorts of a mix of shame and guilt and fear and anxiety. But since we're here in the story with Peter's fear and Jesus's, I want to zoom in particular on fear, because I know from doing work with lots of white folks, 
both in faith settings and not in faith settings, from being alongside friends and family in processes of waking up to racism and seeking to act against it, and in working with a person I see every morning in the mirror. I see that it's true. White folks operate with a lot of fear. And I think it can be baffling to realize how much fear we actually have, especially when we realize how much direct violence people of color experience on the daily due to racism, whether that's physical or spiritual, emotional, or systemic violence. It doesn't seem to make sense that we as white people should be afraid, right? And sometimes it makes me want to pull out my arms and yell, what are we so afraid of, everyone? But I think the fact that actually it doesn't really make sense is a sign that that's exactly how it's supposed to work. Whiteness feeds on fear like the worst of villains. And that fear is necessary to whiteness. And it's worked very, very well to freeze us into participating in and perpetuating evil. And that's why we've got to talk about it. The fears that we have as white people have lots of shapes and sources. Many of us have been taught from a super young age never to rock the boat or else we may lose something. Esteem in the eyes of others, status, approval, jobs, money. We've been taught to play along with the rules and to respect authority, even when it doesn't benefit us. We fear for our job security. We fear what people will think of us if we go against the grain or make those in power feel challenged or discomfort. We fear discomfort ourselves. We fear being vulnerable and taking risks. We fear that we might get hurt or that we unwittingly might hurt others in the process. We fear we might mess up and not do things right. We fear we might get bad feedback or piss someone off. And sometimes we don't even know what we're afraid of. We're just afraid. I think that one way we could respond to these fears is to say, well, look, people of color have to deal with incredible fear within the context of white supremacy every day. So we white people have to just suck it up and get over it and just be better. And I think, though that's tempting and understandable in many ways, I want to have a different conversation with you. I want to resist the urge to tell you to suck it up. Because honestly, that's a message that white supremacy has given me my entire life. It's told me to suppress fear, to suppress vulnerability, and emotion in general, in favor of putting a mask on to pretend to be something that I'm not. We have to be real about our fear and bring it to the surface, because here's the thing. We were scared into whiteness. When white indentured servants, like one of my own ancestors from Ireland, who was sent first as a laborer to Barbados and then to Massachusetts, when indentured servants like him were given guns to separate them from enslaved Africans who they labored alongside. When real estate agents scared white people in the mid-20th century into believing their properties would go down after a black family moved in, so they would sell their homes at low prices, spurring white flight to the suburbs. When public relations campaigns in the 80s and 90s created racist images about black people in cities to justify the war on drugs. All of these times, over and over and over again, 
we were scared into whiteness. And in this very moment, fear holds whiteness in its place. I think of the hands of the officer who killed Philando Castile last summer. His hands still trembling, his shouts quivering, while he was still pointing a gun into the car where he had already shot a man in the front seat who had made no provocation toward him. I think of the fearful calls made by white neighbors when they see a dark body entering a house. I think of the fears of white women, including myself, who are taught to fear black men when walking alone, and how our ancestors were taught the very same by watching Birth of a Nation, which made images of the voracious black rapists centered and cemented in the American mind. I think of the fear that many of us have in naming and facing white supremacy in the way it chokes us and other people within our own congregations, denominations, and even within our movements for justice and liberation. And you know, I actually think it's okay to acknowledge that a lot of these fears are beyond our capacity to control on a conscious level. As much as that sucks, especially when we're trying to be the good white people, we have to admit that they run deep and they have power, just like the deep seas and forceful gales of wind in the scene in our text for this week. And that's why it's so important that we bring them to light. See, people of color can spot fear in us more way, way more than we do. When we clutch our bags unconsciously when a person of color enters an elevator, or when we stumble over our words when trying to talk about racism, or when we fearfully search for a person of color's approval that we're not racist. The hard truth is that we may live with some of our racist fears and with our fears about what will happen if we trouble the water and disrupt racism for the rest of our lives. And so I don't want to encourage you to suck it up or press it down. Just like it's actually unhelpful in undoing racism to pretend that we're not racist, I don't think there's any use in pretending that we're not afraid. Instead, I want it to be okay for you to hold space for your fear. Because otherwise, you won't be able to walk with it. You won't be able to walk out onto the water with fear in one hand and courage that you didn't even know you had in the other. Jesus tells Peter, don't be afraid. And these can be some of the most consoling words in scripture, at least for me. But remember that they come from a man who just heard that his friend died and who knows that he might be next. They come from a person who, according to Orthodox Christian theology, we hear is fully human and divine. That means that however all-powerful Jesus may seem in this scene, I think it's safe to say that he and Peter are working with fear in the moment. 
Now let's talk about Peter. Peter is scared as hell. He doubts himself. He doubts Jesus. And as we know from the gospel stories, Peter is definitely not superhuman. On most counts, he's not even a particularly redeeming figure. And so we know that it's not in being particularly pure of heart or perfect or fearless that gets him walking on water. He ends up walking on water not because he pretends that he's not afraid, but because he cries out. He cries out, Lord, save me. In the midst of his fear, in the midst of Peter's crying out, he's carried by the water, the same water that had been thrashing at the disciples' boat. He's carried by the water and is lifted up and walks on it because he lets go enough to ask for help, because he lets go enough to admit he needs saving, that he can't do it on his own, that he needed a hand, that he can't just suck it up and pretend he's not scared as hell of the storm or the fact that Jesus is walking on water. No, in this moment of desperation, he admits he needs others and that he needs God. And that's something, at least I know, is really hard for me to do. It's certainly not something I was ever taught by whiteness to do. Regardless of the kind of religious messages we heard growing up or we are told today, however much we're told to rely on God, it's important to remember that white culture is a religion to itself. Regardless of our spiritual beliefs, we're indoctrinated into relying on, on whiteness as false security or power to get us through, not on the divine other, and more often than not, not on each other. What I hear in Peter's cry, Lord, save me, is his desperate admittance that ultimately it is not his false securities that will save him. It's his vulnerability. It's his openness not to fix or to save, but to be saved. Beyond his control, or his manipulation. When he cries out, Peter falls into arms of waves that keep him standing, waves that hold him with a luminous possibility beyond what he ever could imagine could be real, according to the reality he lived in. Peter the fisherman is caught in a cry of fear by a miracle. Just like Peter's reality was bound by doubt and suspicion, whiteness has us as white folks living in a fear-based reality that we desperately need saving from. I think that salvation starts by naming and confessing our fears. This is especially important work for white folks to do with each other so that we don't act our fears out on people of color, and so that in holding space for those fears— We're not asking people of color to carry them all for us. Here is one of my biggest fears. It's the fear of failure. I have excruciatingly high standards for myself that are way out of proportion. And those come into play when I show up for racial justice. I really do think that I can and should be able to walk on water all on my own. And I'm terrified of messing up, of failing, or of people thinking ill of me. 
I've learned and I'm still learning every day. But this is one of the ways that white supremacy shows up the most in me. My concern about having an unblemished image of being more than just plain human, of being somehow superhuman, has to do with the ways I'm trained to be white. It has to do with the false idols of perfection that are a part of the culture of white supremacy. Perfection that, as J. Cameron Carter writes about, could even be said to replace God. This desire to be perfect can lead me to not show up in liberation efforts at all, rather than show up imperfectly. They can paralyze me, just like the congregations my friend mentioned, and just like the people I love who raised me. What fears live in you? What fears are holding you back from showing up more authentically and powerfully for racial justice? Whether you're showing up now for the first time or whether you've been doing so for 30 or 40 or 50 years. Is it fear of failure, like mine? Is it fear of discovering parts of yourself that you don't want to see? Is it fear of seeing the shadow sides of institutions that you hold a lot of stake in? Is it fear for your own safety, for your family's safety? Or is it something different altogether? As you bring these to the surface, as you bring to the surface what fears you're carrying and hold them on your heart, I want to share a ritual with you which I'll offer as part of our call to action for this week. It's a ritual I made up to give me courage before participating in direct action where there might be possibility that I come in harm's way, where I'm I'm not completely sure what might happen. Now I use it in all sorts of situations, whether that's preparing for having a conversation I'm anxious about or speaking in front of others or navigating a challenging dynamic in movement work or in relationships. Give it a try this week, in a time when you feel fear creeping up and paralyzing you from being shameless and focused and bold and acting for our collective liberation. Here's the ritual. Light three candles. With the first candle, name and honor the people in your life, past and present, who give you strength, who challenge you, hold you, and have your back. With the second candle, meditate on how your soul and body's freedom is wrapped up in the action you're going to take. Imagine what it would be like to win. With the third candle, notice your fears and where you feel vulnerable. Honor these places too. Acknowledge the risks you're willing to take. And let these settle into your being. Say a prayer, a blessing, or an incantation, calling for protection of yourself and others, and for the fulfillment of your intentions in taking action.
close with a song that brings you hope. In addition to this ritual, try something new this week that you've been afraid to do in your work for racial justice, for whatever reason. Something that makes you go, ah, I don't know about this. If you don't know where to start, check out whiteaccomplices.org. There's a chart there that is a handy way of thinking about how to keep stretching yourself and moving from being an ally to an accomplice. And it's got many tips for action, too. Or try ordering a safety pin box, a subscription toolkit for white people who want to be allies in the fight for black liberation and whose proceeds go to black women who are working for liberation. As you take more risks, I also encourage you to deepen your spiritual practices. For some really good exercises, check out your Dana Peacock's guide, which is called Practice Showing Up. Don't worry, I'll link all of these resources in the transcript available on Serge's website. I invite you to share these with your congregation and people in your community, too. With these new risks that you choose to take, who knows what will happen? Maybe you'll succeed with flying colors. Maybe you'll fail mightily. But what matters is getting moving, not by abolishing your uncertainty, your doubt, or by swallowing your fear, but by moving with it and with the ability to cry out for help and to say, I can't do this alone. Because an object in motion stays in motion, right? The gospel promise is that when we do that, miracle upon miracle is waiting. The miracle of our own power to act beyond what we thought was possible. The miracle of true refuge and community by risking our false sense of independence and safety in our whiteness. The miracle of our belovedness beyond our capacity to imagine in our sacredness and our divinity that needs no supremacy. These miracles are here to hold you, to bless you, to save you, to catch you, to free you. Thank you for joining me today. As always, the transcript this week will include a bunch of resources at the end to support your action. Next week's podcast will feature Reverend Ann Dudlap discussing the lectionary text for Sunday, August 20th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's called We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. 
we are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for the podcast. Our sound editor this week is Colin Madison, and we thank him for his work.